following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to the 11th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. The 11th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. I'd like to begin by simply reading the chapter and then proceed to unpack and apply it to our lives. In order that the simple would be made wise, in order that the proud would be made humble, that the weak would be made strong, that the hard would be made soft, that the unstable would be made secure, that the indifferent in this room would be made zealous, that the inadequate would be made competent, that the dead would be made alive, and that the hopeless would be made hopeful. Ultimately, for the glory of the triune God, to whom all praises due, for the good of the blood-bought church, for whom the Son was given, and for the gathering of the chosen race who have yet to receive the Savior's grace. I would remind you that as the Apostle Paul stated in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God gave us his word to teach us what is right to teach us what is not right, to teach us how to get right, and to teach us how to stay right. And so with that, I invite you to hear and heed the life-imparting, soul-purifying, heart-inflaming, hope-arousing words of the true and living God. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their synagogues, sorry, in their cities, Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. 
Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Grace Community Church, this is the word of the living God. Thanks be to God. In the person of Jesus Christ, there is a breathtakingly beautiful, radiantly ravishing combination of diverse and paradoxical characteristics and attributes. I say that again. In the person of Jesus Christ, there is a breathtakingly beautiful, ravishingly radiant combination of diverse and paradoxical characteristics and attributes. By paradoxical characteristics and attributes, I mean that in his person, there are characteristics and attributes that are seemingly self-contradictory. Of course, the key word in that is seemingly. 
There are characteristics and qualities about our Savior that seem to contradict one another, but upon careful consideration and deeper examination, we discover that there is absolutely nothing contradictory about the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, in that staggering vision of heaven that the Apostle John gives us in Revelation chapter 5, the elders describe Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when John looks upon him, with the tears still clearing from his eyes, he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slaughtered. The Bible calls him a lion, and the Bible also calls him a lamb. Two creatures that, in light of their inherent characteristics and qualities, are completely opposite from one another. Lions are fierce predators. Lambs are helpless prey. Lions devour and slaughter the animals that they hunt. Lambs are led to the slaughter. Lambs, or lions rather, are known for their majestic appearance and their remarkable strength and their intimidating roars. In fact, the experts tell us that a lion's roar can be heard up to five miles away, which is how a male lion establishes and continues to reinforce his dominance in that territory. Lambs, on the other hand, are known for being meek and defenseless. And yet in the Bible, Jesus Christ is described paradoxically as both a lion and a lamb. At first, this seems to be contradictory. But upon careful consideration and deeper examination, we learn that there is absolutely nothing contradictory about him. He is the good shepherd, and he is the generous host of Psalm 23 that prepares a table for his sinful people and causes their cups to overflow. And he is also the king of kings and lord of lords who will shatter the kings of the earth on the day of his wrath. As Psalm 110 says, he will execute judgment among the nations. He will fill the nations with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This is the same one, the same shepherd of Psalm 23. He kindly spreads the corner of his radiantly white robe over us to cover our sin and our shame and our nakedness. And yet in another place in the Bible, we see him wearing a robe soaked in the blood of his enemies as he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The resplendent glory of his holy countenance causes his holy angels and his holy people to fall down in joyful, exuberant worship and adoration. And yet one glimpse of his presence will cause his enemies to flee and plead with the mountains to bury them lest they look upon his face. Revelation chapter 6. The same shepherd's rod of Psalm 23 that comforts his sheep will be the means of shattering unrepentant sinners like pieces of pottery on the day of judgment. From his mouth proceeds the words of grace and life that give us hope and rest. And yet we read regarding the day of judgment, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Same mouth. He is both the friend of sinners who attracts the worst of the worst 
by the magnet of his magnanimous mercy, and yet he's also the sinner's judge and the sinner's worst conceivable nightmare. It is said of him on the day of judgment as he is seated on his throne, and I quote, from his face, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. We can only imagine. We can only imagine his enemies assembling for, ju- for judgment, assembling for trial as they watch heaven and earth fleeing the presence of Jesus Christ, the way those poor people in the streets of New York City fled for their lives as the towers were crashing down behind them on September 11th, 2001. And yet his enemies will have nowhere to flee. The heavens can flee. The earth can flee because they're not the ones summoned to judgment. His enemies are. How astonishing that the same face that will cause the inhabitants of the new earth to sing with fullness of joy and to be satisfied for all eternity is the same face that will incite infinite terror and inconceivable dread in those who will suffer eternal punishment in the lake of fire because they refuse to turn from their sinful ways and trust in him. Oh, church, this is our king. This is our savior. This is Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God. And as we turn our attention now to Matthew chapter 11, Matthew wants us to see that in the person of Jesus Christ, there is a breathtakingly beautiful, ravishingly radiant combination of diverse and paradoxical characteristics and attributes, all of which ought to move us to four things, to praise him more passionately, to serve him more zealously, to love him more dearly, and to follow him more nearly. Matthew, as a disciple who walked with Jesus, calls our attention this morning to four realities concerning our king. He wants us to see that, number one, our king offers assurance to the doubtful. Number two, he pronounces woes to the unrepentant. Number three, he ascribes sovereignty to the Father. And number four, he gives rest to the weary. And as we come to this first section, verses 1 through 19, the first thing Matthew wants us to see is that our king offers assurance to the doubtful. He offers assurance to the doubtful. In chapter 10, you remember, Jesus calls to himself 12 of his disciples, and he gives them authority over demons and over disease and over death, and he charges them to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in order to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king of heaven is at hand. He sends them out as shepherds to lost sheep while simultaneously warning them that he is also sending them out as sheep among fierce wolves. They are to be conscious and they are to be mindful of the persecution of the world that hates them. They are to be mindful of the providence of the Father who loves them. They are to be mindful of the division that Jesus came to bring between families. And they are to be mindful of the reward that awaits all who receive their message. That's what we saw last week in chapter 10. Well, now that Jesus is finished instructing the 12, he goes with them and begins to teach and preach in their cities. Verse 1. 
when he finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Likely they would see people they knew. They would see childhood friends. And yet these men are living very different lives now. They're still learning. They're still struggling along. They're still being refined and they will be refined for the next three years as they follow Jesus. But now they're going to their cities to preach. Meanwhile, the reality of being persecuted that they had just been taught, persecuted for the sake of righteousness and persecuted for the sake of the kingdom, now hits the disciples in a very real way. You see, John the Baptist, whom we saw back in chapter 3, preparing the people for the arrival of the king and his kingdom, is in prison. And Matthew doesn't tell us how he got there just yet. He will do that for us in chapter 14. For Matthew's purposes, he doesn't deem it necessary to go into those details right now because of what he wants to communicate concerning the Savior. Well, as John the Baptist is in prison, verse 3, you'll notice, he hears about all that Jesus is doing. And so he sends some of his disciples, his own disciples, to Jesus with a rather strange question. He asks, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Are you the one, the promised one, the one the prophets predicted, the one the Old Testament expected? Or should we be looking for another? Now, the reason this seems strange and out of character for John is because back in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, you remember he told the crowds as he's preparing the way for the Messiah, he said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, almost identical language in the Greek, the one coming after me, the one coming is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And just then, Jesus approaches John and John baptizes him. And John bears witness saying, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. That account comes to us from the gospel of John. And on another occasion, John sees Jesus and exclaims before the crowds, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so there was a time when John was absolutely certain that Jesus was the promised king, the son of David, the Messiah who was to come. But now he's alone. He's in prison with lots of time to think and lots of time to ponder. And maybe because John hadn't witnessed what Jesus would come to do as he preached in chapter 3, namely baptize his people with the Holy Spirit and execute judgment upon his enemies, burning them with unquenchable fire, maybe that it's the case that John is confused, perhaps even doubtful. John was saying, I, I just finished preaching that he would come and baptize his people with fire and baptize with the Holy Spirit and baptize with fire and that he would burn his enemies with unquenchable fire. Maybe John's thinking, this hasn't happened yet. Is he the one? Perhaps he's confused and perhaps even 
doubtful. Furthermore, it was said of the Messiah in Isaiah 61 that when he came, he would open the prison to those who were bound. Now, could it be that as John is reflecting on all of these messianic prophecies, He's thinking, well, the Messiah came to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives. And he came to open the prison to those who were bound in prison. And here I am as the forerunner of the Messiah, languishing in prison. And so John's confusion, which by now has evolved into doubt, is understandable, though sad at the same time. Now, before you bust the chops of John the Baptist. Be very careful. Be very careful. Because what are you tempted to do when you're alone? What are you tempted to do when you're suffering and things aren't going the way that you think they should be going according to God's plan? What are you tempted to do when you go from serving God and seeing the fruit of your labor to now doing nothing and seeing nothing because of providence? You're tempted to doubt. You're tempted to question, is God there? Your tears are saying, where is your God? Is God even real? Is any of this real? And that seems to be where John the Baptist is. Note the response of Jesus and what he wants them to relate to John, verse 4. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus points them back to not only what they are seeing and hearing, but he points them back even further than what they see and hear. Back to the Old Testament prophecies, specifically Isaiah chapter 35, where we read this. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and he will save you. And now listen to Isaiah 35 verse 5 and how it resembles what Jesus is saying here. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. All of this written over 700 years before. When he says the dead are raised, this is probably a reference to Isaiah 26, 19, where God says through Isaiah, your dead shall live, your bodies shall rise, you shall dwell. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy for your due is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. And then he mentions also, tell John that the poor have good news preached to them, which is probably a reference to Isaiah chapter 61, which points us directly to the Messiah as the one who is speaking there. The Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. To bring good news to the poor. All these promises from Isaiah pointed directly to the coming Messiah and what he would do when he arrived. 
after responding then by pointing to his own ministry and how it perfectly fulfilled Isaiah's messianic prophecies, he concludes with a mild rebuke to John, which is why I tend to believe that John isn't just confused and questioning, but that this confusion has evolved into doubt. Look at verse 6. You can also tell John this. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one, happy is the one, fortunate is the one, divinely favored by God is the one who is not offended by me. The word is scandalizo. It means to cause someone to sin. It means to set up some stumbling block before something. And so what Jesus is saying to relate to John, go tell John this. Tell him what you're seeing and tell him what you're hearing and how this perfectly resembles Isaiah's prophecies in Isaiah 35 and 61 and 26. But I also want you to tell John, blessed is the man who isn't stumbled by me, who isn't offended by me. Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble into sin because of me. Now, it's not that Jesus ever has or ever will lead his people into sin, but rather he's referring to the possibility of either being ashamed of him or being embarrassed of him because of who he is or something that he's said and how unacceptable that is to the world. The world will say things like, you seriously believe that stuff? You seriously believe this Jewish man rose from the dead? And we're to stand firm and say, absolutely. Why wouldn't I? You seriously believe that he is the only way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him? Absolutely. Why wouldn't I believe that? We've been given grace, the spirit of God, to believe that and embrace that. Blessed is the one, blessed are all of you who hold fast to what you believe even in the face of loneliness and despair and depression and persecution, blessed are those who are not offended by him. And so I encourage you to embrace everything that he's done, embrace everything that he has said. It is truth. It is absolute truth. It is real. He has come and he is coming again. And friends, there will be times when you're tempted, either in seasons of trial or loneliness or persecution, to question and doubt the reality of Christ and the faithfulness of Christ Listen to Spurgeon. He said, some of us who have preached the word for years and have been the means of working faith in others and of establishing them in the knowledge of the fundamental doctrines of the Bible have nevertheless been the subjects of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel we have preached. This is the prince of preachers acknowledging that. The truth is, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, if we are faithless, Christ remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remember that in your seasons of doubt and darkness. What do we do with our doubts? Well, we do what John did. We go to Christ. We inquire of Christ. And what does, Je- what does Jesus do to us by his spirit now? Well, he points us back to the faith-arousing, doubt-eliminating word of God. Our king offers assurance to the doubtful then and now. Well, the scene changes a bit. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. 
As they went away, these are the disciples of John the Baptist, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. So John is still the the subject of the conversation here. He asks asks the crowds, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? That is, a man as unstable as every other guy out there? The wind blows and he moves. The wind blows this way and he moves. He was anything but a reed shaken by the wind. He was a pillar, unmoved by the wind, unmoved by the storm. What then did you go out to see, verse 8? A man dressed in soft clothing, delicate man. He says, behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. It's not why you went out there. You didn't go out there to hear someone that was going to blow with the wind of your expectations who's just going to give you what you wanted to hear you didn't go looking for a soft man you know that that's where the kings that's in in palaces he says what then did you go out to see verse 9 a prophet yes I tell you and more than a prophet this was the forerunner of the Messiah this was the one that Isaiah 40 spoke about who would come and say prepare the way For the Lord, make his path straight. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. This is a quote from Malachi chapter 4, one of the very last books of the Old Testament where the expectation leading into 400 years of prophetic silence, the last word was that I will send my messenger before your face and he will prepare the way before you. Jesus continues in verse 11. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. What a privilege he had to be the one who had the Holy Spirit even from the womb. You remember when Mary, pregnant Mary, went and met pregnant Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mom, the babies leaped, right? John knew. He's in the presence of his Savior. There was was a a supernatural joy and exuberance about about John from the very moment he was in the womb. No one has arisen greater than John the Baptist, and yet, look at verse 11, one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why? Because John was just the forerunner, and though he will inherit all of the same promises, we who are in Christ and the disciples who got to walk with him for three and a half years who had a much closer exposure to John are more privileged than John. And even us today. John the Baptist came out and rolled the red carpet. We get to enjoy all the privileges of being seated with Christ in the heavenly places, of having his spirit with us, his word instructing us, his people around us. He goes on and he says... From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. The kingdom of heaven has been attacked. The Pharisees came out and they questioned John and the authorities questioned John. There's always been an attack, a violent attack against the kingdom of God. But yet, he says, and the violent take it by force. In other words, he he turns the tables as it were and says, yet there are violent people who whose eyes are opened, who are awakened to the reality 
of the kingdom and they take it by force. Now, some people say that this might be a reference to, you know, the kingdoms of this world and the persecutors of the church taking the kingdom. Friend, this kingdom cannot be taken. This kingdom cannot be shaken. It cannot be conquered. If there's any taking of the kingdom, it's those who are awakened to see the glory of the kingdom and who by faith then go in and lay hold of the kingdom and take it to themselves. And we learn later on in the Gospel of Matthew that the Father all along was pleased to give you the kingdom. From the foundation of the world, he has been pleased to give you the kingdom. It's interesting how here in the Bible, the author, the writer Matthew, refers to the Christian as a violent person. Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, has a book called uh, heaven taken by storm based upon this text. Talking about how, yes, it's a free gift. Yes, it's founded, sustained, upheld by the grace of God. But yet you are called to lay hold of it. You are called to enter through the narrow gate and to stay on the narrow path. You are called to pluck out offending right eyes and you are called to pl- cut off right hands if they are causing you to sin. You're to be violent with your sin, to be violent, to make sure that you are doing nothing but resting in the finished work of Christ. And so when it comes to your faith, are you a violent person? Are you violent with your sin? Are you violent when it comes to the lusts of the flesh? Friends, I was talking to a brother this week and I told him we cannot afford to compromise in the area of lust. We cannot afford it. Too much is at stake. Too much is at stake with our relationship with God. You begin to toy around and play around with lust and, 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 and look at things that you shouldn't be looking at. And what happens? Your joy in Christ depletes. Your assurance depletes. Your confidence in prayer depletes. We cannot afford to toy with our sin even a little bit. We have to be violent with it. We have to be harsh on ourselves. So often we are, as I was talking to my brother this week, we, we are so quick to speak peace to ourselves. You know, to, to, when you sin in any degree and you fall really hard, you know, the next day you get up out of, out of a, a sense of conviction and you, you pray in the morning. You haven't done that for months. You, 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 you read. You haven't done that for weeks. And then you say, I'm good. Things are good. And you speak a premature peace to your heart. Now, is there peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? Positionally, yes, absolutely. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that peace is primarily an objective peace, right? It's, it's, there's no longer any alienation and separation from God. There's no warfare. There's no enmity any longer. But there is another sense in which God also desires for his children to have a subjective felt peace. It's, our peace is both a fact and a feeling. What I'm, what I'm encouraging you towards is walking and maintaining the feeling of peace. How? Is that possible? Yes, it's possible. How? By being violent with your sin, being violent to storm the throne of grace at the, at the, at the, at the slightest uprising of any lust or any sin. Like a child, go to your father. Go to your savior. 
He is a high priest who is able to sympathize with every one of your weaknesses. You're not going to be shunned. You're not going to be embarrassed. You're not going to be shamed by him. He sympathizes with your weaknesses. He's willing to listen. He's willing to care for you. He's willing to sustain you and encourage you and build you up so that you go out and you leave that place stronger and more prepared for the battle. The king offers assurance to the doubtful. The violent take the kingdom by force. He says, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, signifying that John was really the last Old Testament prophet, verse 13, 14 says, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He is the prophesied Elijah who is to come. Now, after the quotation from Malachi chapter four, behold, I send my messenger before your face. This is actually how the Old Testament ends with this note of Elijah. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter desolation. Jesus says, you know who John the Baptist really was in spirit? He's not speaking literally here. He's speaking... Spirit, he's speaking figuratively here. But again, even though we speak figuratively, it does not chip away at the truth of what he's saying. He says, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He is Elijah who is to come. I mean, we saw the resemblances when we were in Matthew chapter 3 between John the Baptist and Elijah, both in their message and their their method in the way they lived, in the way they sought to communicate the truth of God. He is the Elijah who is to come. And he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he turns to the crowds and he says in verse 16, but to what shall I compare this generation? I've compared John the Baptist to Elijah, but what shall I compare this generation to? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. Now, there was a a game that the children played in the streets in that day where some of the elders, some of the older people would uh, uh, pretend to play a flute, pretend to play some kind of instrument, and the children, uh, it was a happy song, and the children would dance, and the children would be happy. And then they would, be, they would pretend to play a, 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 a sad song, like at a funeral, and the children were to mourn like the professional mourners that we saw back in Matthew chapter 9 at the, the ruler's house, right? And so based upon the, 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 the performance of the adult, the children were to follow suit. He says, this generation is like that situation, and they're calling to their playmates, we, we played a, uh, the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, we sang a sad song, and you did not mourn. What Jesus is saying here, based upon their reaction to John the Baptist, is that John came. And what they wanted, what many people want today, is an easy message, a soft message. John came preaching repentance. It's not what they expected. He's basically saying, he's likening himself and John the Baptist to the adults in the game. Whatever they play, the children do the opposite. Or the children just don't respond. 
How do we know that? Well, look at verse 18. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. He's saying, you should have, you should have welcomed him and celebrated the imminence of the kingdom that it's here. The dawning of the king is about to break forth. And what do you say about John? You conclude that he's demonic. And not only John, Jesus himself, look at verse 19. The son of man came eating and drinking, celebrating a happy song, right? Eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The point that he is making here, the point that he's making here is that they're doing the exact opposite of what God desired. The very opposite of what they should have been doing. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Not just water. He came and he drank wine with tax collectors and sinners. So contrary to the expectation of the Messiah. I mean, we read all those glorious prophecies in Isaiah 35 and 61 and so forth. And yet when this majestic Son of Man comes, what do we see him doing? We see him at a table with food and wine, enjoying himself with his disciples and presumably sharing the gospel, sharing about the truth with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, there is a magnetic force to his magnanimous mercy and he just, he just attracted the worst of the worst. Tax collectors and sinners, we talked about that a few weeks ago of how they were considered the worst of the worst. Tax collectors not even being allowed to stand as witnesses in a trial because of how shady they were and yet they're being attracted to the Son of Man. This was a joyous time. This was Jesus coming and, and, and celebrating, playing the flute as it were. And yet the reaction was the opposite of a happy song. It was, he's a drunkard and a, a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet Jesus concludes by saying, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. In other words, the truth of what I'm doing actually justifies everything. I came to seek and save the lost I came to give my life as a ransom for many. I came for the sick. It's not the healthy that need a physician. It's the sick that need the physician. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Friends, this is who our Savior is. You see the different pictures we are getting of Christ here. He is one who offers, kindly offers assurance to the doubtful. But when it comes to the proud and arrogant, he offers stern warning and justice. Now, we go on and having seen verses 1 through 19, where our king offers assurance to the doubtful, we see in verses 20 through 24 that he pronounces woes to the unrepentant. He pronounces woes to the unrepentant. Look at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. What warranted this harshness from our Lord? What brought about him pronouncing these woes? It's there in the text, friends. They did not repent. 
These were places where he performed his mighty wonders, where he raised the dead, where he healed the sick, causing the lame to leap like deer and the deaf to be able to speak, the blind to be able to see, and yet they did not repent. This just goes to show that he did not come to just entertain people. Oh, great, look at this, another wonder. The wonder is meant to produce repentance. That's one of the problems with all the so-called wonders and miracles that we see on Christian television today or hear about on Christian radio. Is it producing repentance or is it producing entertainment? Because most of the time, it's entertainment. But the people come back again and again and again. They want to see more. They want to see more people, you know, you know, staged, you know, that they're crippled and that they're in a wheelchair and that, you know, this guy waves his coat and then he's free and he's, he's, he's walking. There's a thrill about it, but there's no repentance that flows from it. You see, the signs and wonders of the Bible were always meant to produce repentance, deep-seated contrition and brokenheartedness over the reality of your filth and your sin that you flee to the mercy of Christ. That's why he did this. That's why he performed these signs and wonders was to bring about a change of heart, not just entertainment. Verse 21, he starts with Chorazin. Woe to you, Chorazin. The word woe describes uh, uh, misery, pity. In other words, how unfortunate. Oh, how terrified you should be. Woe to you is a common phrase used by the Old Testament prophets again and again to refer to uh, the, the coming judgment. Woe to you, an expression frequently used in the Old Testament. Chorazin was a small town a few miles north of the Sea of Galilee, about two miles north of Capernaum. That's where he did his miracles, did his wonders. He says also, woe to you, Bethsaida. And notice, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, ancient cities where there was an abundance of wickedness, Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth was, was, uh, was derived from animal's hair. And, and whenever you would put sackcloth on you, it was a sign of, 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 a visible sign of what was happening inwardly, that there was a change of heart, a repentance. It was uncomfortable. It was ugly. And, and you, by wearing that, you would understand and, uh, that, that you're sinful and that you're guilty and that you're vile before God. He says these people would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, they would have given the, 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 the most powerful sign of inner contrition and brokenheartedness over their sin. But I tell you, verse 22, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. We saw this a few weeks ago, didn't we, or last week, as he commissions his disciples to go forth. He says, if anyone rejects you, it's going to be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for you. Sodom and Gomorrah never got to hear the sweetness of the Savior's word. Tyre and Sidon never got to see the sweetness of the Savior's face. And so though it will still be infinitely dreadful for them on the day of judgment, it will be worse. Jesus talks about and taught the different degrees of punishment. There are different levels of punishment in hell. We tend to think it's just one big open lake Friends, there are degrees. 
There are levels. There are varying degrees of punishment. There will be a, a, a severity, yes, against the Sodom and Gomorrah and all these cities, but it will be so much worse for people who thousands of years after Sodom and Gomorrah who are sitting in churches every Sunday hearing the free invitation of the gospel and to harden your heart and say, no, oh, how much worse it will be for you. I, I hope that something in these words of truth breaks and shatters the pride in your heart so that you don't stand before God on the day of judgment and this moment or these moments of sitting here flash across your memory and say, oh, the opportunity was given me again and again and again and I hardened my heart. I could hear the shepherd's voice inviting me that if I come, he will by no means cast me out and yet I was so proud and stubborn. I was so concerned about all the things of this world. We tend to in our minds have a deceptive view of who the sinners in the world really are. We think that they are the blatant Satan worshipers and the Nazis and the North Koreans and friends, let me tell you something just very, very upfront. The most wicked person in the world is one who is exposed and given the free offer of the gospel and then spits in the face of the one offering and says, no, I don't want it. I want my darkness. I want my sin. Who cares about what's happening in North Korea? What's happening in your heart? What's happening in you? Who cares about Nazi Germany? I mean, that's, 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 that's there. Yes, it's tragic. But what you should ultimately be concerned about is not that sinner and that sinner and those horrible people. But what about the one that you see when you look in the mirror every day? What about that one? Has that one fled for refuge in the only safety place, the only hiding place, the Lord Jesus Christ? He says in verse 23, and you, Capernaum, this was where his, 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 so much of his works were done. Will you be exalted to heaven? In other words, will you exalt yourself in pride? I don't need this message. I don't need this savior. I don't need this rabbi. Will you be exalted? Will you be lifted up? He says, you will be brought down to Hades. You will be brought down to the grave. For if the mighty works done in you, Capernaum, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Jesus knew. He's not lying. He's not lying. He knew that if he went down literally in the days of Sodom and was doing the works he was doing in the, the times of, of, of Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin, they would have repented. They would have received the message. He's not lying. He's not lying at all. It would have remained until this day. But I tell you, verse 24, that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Sodom never got to hear about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. They never got to hear that word. They never got to hear, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. They never got to hear that this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins and that he who has the son has life. I never got to hear that. You hear it, and I hear it every day, all the time. 
across our social media feeds, whenever we open our Bibles, whenever we turn on the radio, presuming that we're listening to good stuff on the radio, or on our apps, or whatever it is, we hear it every day, what do we do with it? I'll tell you what we do with it. Hebrews chapter 2, we must make sure that we hold fast to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we neglect How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Let us hold fast to what we hear. Every time we hear it, let us pause and wonder and and praise that we we have been given eyes and ears and hearts to receive this truth, to receive it with meekness, which is able to save our souls. Well, our king offers assurance to the doubtful. He then offers, he pronounces woes to the unrepentant in verses 20 through 24. Thirdly, he ascribes sovereignty to the Father. Now notice this. Again, we're we're seeing these different extremes in our Lord. These opposite ends of the spectrum, if you will. And yet there's no disharmony. There's no contradiction in his adorable person. Notice in this very same moment, again... Some of us have the ESV and there's a, there's a break in the, the, the words of the editor here between verse 24 and 25. Come to me and I will give you rest. But in Matthew's mind, there's, there's no break. He says, at that time, look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. At the time of him pronouncing these woes upon the unrepentant, It doesn't say that Jesus went and left frustrated. It doesn't say that he went and left kicking the dust and telling his disciples, ah, just forget about it. Let's go. Let's go back and let's enjoy some wine with some more tax collectors and some food. Let's just just go. At that time, as he's pronouncing this horrible judgment to come, at that time he pauses in prayer And says, I thank you, Father. I thank you, Father. It just goes to show the Lord Jesus had such a walk with his Father. The perfect walk, I I, I would say, with his Father. That he could go from talking to men to immediately talking to his Father. We should seek to be like him in that regard. That there be nothing between our soul and the Savior. That we could go literally from talking to one another to just dropping what we're doing and praying and thanking God without having this clutter of unconfessed sin always behind us so that when we do go to the Father, we're overwhelmed with all the things that we have to confess and all the things that we have to think about and, and overcome. Let us be people who are, keep short accounts with God, who, who, who as soon as we sin again, we go to the mercy seat and we confess and, and so that when we go about our day and our, 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 our ministering to one another and to those in the world, that we could go from addressing them to immediately saying, Father, thank you. He says, Father, I thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Our king ascribes sovereignty to the Father. Why did Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, why did they ultimately reject the gospel? Why were they rejecting the king? Were they responsible? Absolutely. Are they going to be held accountable? Absolutely. Were they manipulated like robots to reject 
the message of the king? No. Did they freely love the darkness and hate the light? Absolutely. And yet ultimately, why didn't they come to the knowledge of the truth? Let's not be ashamed of what God's word says here. Because the father hadn't revealed it to them. The truth was there. They willingly and freely despised it. And yet, he says, Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1? Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong. Three times in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose, God chose, God chose so that no human being would boast in the presence of God. Father, I thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and you've revealed them to who? Little children. He often referred to his disciples and the simple of the land as little children. In the miracles he performed, he says to some of the men, my son, my child, you've revealed these things. The idea is to the simplest of the simple. Those who know that they're sinful, those who know that they have no good apart from God, you've revealed these things to them. You remember why Peter could see that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, as we're going to see in Matthew chapter 16. It wasn't because Peter was wise, wiser than others. It wasn't because he was smart. It wasn't because of his upbringing. Why, when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Why did Peter say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? Jesus didn't say to him, man, Peter, you're smart. Peter, you got this. You've got good theology, Peter. He says, Peter... Blessed are you. That means the favor of God is upon you. Flesh and blood, that is, Peter's flesh and blood, did not reveal this to Peter. He says, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. My Father has supernaturally worked in your heart, Peter, to bring you to the full conviction and full persuasion that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And any one of you here who can say in your heart, who is Christ? If you can say, he is my treasure, he is my great reward, he is my Savior, my Christ, my Messiah, my King, my prophet, my priest, if you can say that, I want to tell you this morning that flesh and blood did not bring you to that point. No preacher brought you to that point. You and all of your smartness, sorry, didn't bring you to that point. You were brought to that point because of the sovereign Father who revealed these things to you. All glory belongs to him. Father, I thank you that you've hidden these things from some and you've revealed these things to others. He says, verse 26, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, all according to the will of God. That's the will that ultimately stands. That's the will that ultimately is upheld. He says, verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. All authority, all dominion. Remember, 
We keep going back to that vision of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, where this son of, one like a Son of Man is presented before the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and to the Son of Man is given dominion and a kingdom and authority and glory that all nations and peoples should serve Him. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And now notice this. And no one knows the Son except the Father. This by the way, is one of those places in the Bible that just explodes with the deity of Christ. If we will see it. No one knows the Father except the Son. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that who can know a person except really the spirit of that person? Right? No one knows the infinite depths of the riches of the Son of God but the Father. It takes the Father's infinite mind to know the Son. We know him through a glass dimly, right? We know him by just what he's revealed to us. And even what has been revealed to us is mind-boggling and mind-blowing and ravishingly radiant and glorious and beautiful. Even when we're in glory, we will not be able to know him as the Father knows him. But even the little that we will know compared to the Father's knowledge will be enough to leave us forever satisfied in his presence, ever praising, ever singing, ever rejoicing before him. No one knows the Son except the Father. The Son's infinite beauty and glory is such that it takes the infinite mind of the Father to know him. Convert, uh, on, on the other hand, notice... And no one knows the Father except the Son. So again, this speaks of Jesus' deity. No one can fully understand the infinite depths of the Father's perfection and glory and excellencies except the Son. He fully knows the Father, and the Father fully knows him. And notice, no one knows the Father except the Son, and, and this is gospel here, this is good news, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and you revealed these things to little children. What's revealed to the little children, what's revealed is ultimately the choice of the son. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That is true both then and that is true now. Jesus, as the mediator of heaven and earth, between heaven and earth, brings people into the knowledge of the Father. And no one will ever, ever, ever reach the knowledge of God apart from the Son's choice to reveal the per- revealed Father to that individual. And it's not a flippant, oh, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to reveal this. I'm going to reveal my father to this guy today. No, all that he does is ultimately rooted in the immovable, unchangeable decree of election. Remember, we, 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 we did that series a while back on the doctrines of grace, and we saw how all of election and all of redemption is ultimately rooted in God's sovereign plan. 
that Christ came according to plan. He died according to plan. Those for whom he died was all according to plan. Those that are regenerated are regenerated according to this plan. Everything that happens in time is rooted in this plan. And so anyone the Son reveals the Father to is ultimately rooted in God's, father and father, God's sovereign decree of election, God's gracious decree of election. Remember, we saw that the Father is not on the different page, a different page than the Son. It wasn't that the Father chose some and, the fa- and then the Son came, well, I know that you did that, but I'm going to try to save all of them. No, the Father and the Son are one. One in their actions, one in their purpose. The Bible is not ashamed to tell us that you cannot reach the knowledge of God on your own. It's ultimately rooted in the sovereign decree of God and the sovereign choice of the Son. So what do you do? All you can do is plead for mercy. You're not the one who brought yourself to Christ. At the end of the day, you are not the reason you're saved. You are saved because the Father chose you and the Son revealed the Father to you. And the Spirit regenerated you according to plan. So it's interesting, these two extremes, right? We see Jesus pronouncing these woes and promising this horrible judgment upon the unrepentant. But then in the very next sentence, he's thanking the Father that he's, he's, he's in control. It's all according to plan. It's all according to plan. And we're to remember that as we go from this place. Well, fourthly and lastly, we've seen that our king offers assurance to the doubtful. He pronounces woes to the unrepentant. He ascribes sovereignty to the Father. And as we come to our fourth and final point this morning, we see that our king gives rest to the weary. Look at verses 28 through 30. He says, come to me. Again, now he goes from talking to the Father back to now talking to his listeners. That's the kind of walk he had. That's the kind of prayer life that he had, the kind of communion and closeness to God that he had, that he could go from talking to men to talking to God, and then from talking to God to talking to men. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice the free invitation. The free invitation. He is the sovereign son who chooses, and yet he is the gracious son who invites. Isn't that wonderful? We tend to want to rest in one or the other, right? We want to say, no, 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 no. This is all an invitation system. He just invites us. He does nothing more. If you think that he does nothing more than just invite you, you need to read your Bible. And if you think that all he does is sovereignly decree your salvation and that you do nothing, well, you're off too. Because you came. You freely came, right? You weren't, you weren't, you weren't like, you know, something possessed you and you, you went to follow Christ, Oh, you came freely as a little child and you threw yourself upon the mercy of Christ based upon his gentle invitation to come. All come to me. We see both. But we know that ultimately all of it is rooted in the sovereignty of God. All of it. Come to me. All. Not just some. All who labor and are heavy laden. And notice the promise. The guarantee. I will give you rest. Listen to what grace is given to you there. Jesus says that if you come, you will be given rest. If you come to him, he's not going to have you jump through all these hoops. He's not going to have you clean up your life first before you come to him. If you come to him, he will give you rest. 
Notice the two characteristics of those who are given the invitation. All who labor and are heavy laden. He's primarily talking to people who are just overburdened by the dead religion of the day. We're going to see in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus just pronouncing woes upon the religious leaders because they made it so hard for people to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, I know that you've been heavy, you've been loaded with all of these regulations and these rules by your religious leaders. He says, come to me, all of you who are overburdened and just weighed down by all these rules and regulations. Just come to me. That is good news this morning. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're wondering what do you need to do to be saved, all you need to do is come to Christ. Come to Christ. What about my repentance? The repentance will come. The repentance will still be refined 20 years from the moment you come. The repentance will still be growing and maturing 40 years after you come. Because it's a lifestyle of repentance. But initially you come in faith and then you begin to grow in your hatred of sin and your contriteness of heart and all the rest. Come to Him. That is such good news. If you've never come, the invitation is there for you today. Come to Him. All who labor and are heavy laden now. What about that? Well, you might say today, well, I'm not overloaded with the rules and regulations of a dead religion, people making it hard for me. No, but everyone in this world is laboring and is heavy laden. There are those who do so in a religious context, and there are those who do so in a non-religious context, because those in a non-religious context, they are laboring and they are heavy laden with what? Their guilt. Their guilt. They have been given a conscience by God and they are laboring. It is hard work to suppress the truth over time. It is hard work to try to cover your guilt. It is hard work to try to excuse your sin and to make excuses. An invitation is given to you almost every Sunday and it is hard work to try to make excuses for not coming. And so both the religious and the irreligious are laboring in some form or fashion. There are those who are laboring to make their way to God and finding themselves exhausted. And then there are those who are laboring to suppress the truth of God that is in creation. And they're finding that, I mean, have you ever tried to take a a floaty or a beach ball and try to push it down to the bottom of a pool? It's work. It's work. And yet that's what some of you are doing this morning. The truth of God is there. The good news is there. And yet you're pushing it down. You don't, and every time you slip, it pops up and pop, splashes you in the face. And that's good, and it should. Stop resisting. Do not harden your heart. Just come to him, all who, of you who are laboring and are overloaded, and he will give you rest. This is a spiritual inner rest This is a rest that flows from being at peace with God, justified, adopted into the family of God, given the Spirit as a guarantee of the day of redemption, given the hope of glory, given given the access to God into this grace in which we stand, given the joy, the hope of glory. This is the rest that flows from all of salvation's benefits. Christ promises you rest, which is Gloriously good news because we find in the Old Testament where God says there will be no rest for the wicked. 
And now we see the Messiah come and promising rest for the wicked, rest that will come only and exclusively through him. There's no rest. There's no other resting place. There's no other resting place. We read in the days of Noah's Ark, we find that dove leaving the ark and there was nowhere to lay her herself, right? Because the floodwaters hadn't receded. The only safe place on that, in that day was back at the ark. And I want you to know that it's the same way today. There's no other resting place but the love of Christ. And that is open to you if you will come, if you will humble yourself and come to him. Notice the instructions in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This was an agricultural tool that was put over two oxen or two heavy animals. And they would put one, you know, the neck in one and the neck in the other. And it was a, it was a piece of wood or a piece of metal. And, and they would plow the field together. And one couldn't go in front of the other without the other. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Link up with me. Put yourself under my instruction. Learn from me. Let me be your teacher. Let me be the one who speaks to to you the, the words of spirit and life, the words of truth. Let me be the one to guide your life. That's what he's saying. For, notice the motivation here, I am gentle and lowly in heart. What an extreme. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a lamb. We saw that he was a lion as he's pronouncing these woes upon these cities. And now the same one turns and says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Do you realize that this is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus speaks of his heart and tells us what his heart's like? And what is his heart? Gentle, lowly. Tender, careful, caring, compassionate, soft, willing for all of you who would come to him. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. It's not like the religious burdens of the Pharisees that they're putting on you. My yoke is easy. Why? Because he does the work, he does the pulling, he does it all. And you're just there connected to him as one ox to an infinitely greater ox. As one branch to the vine, you're connected to him. He does the work. You get the benefit. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, the burden of your guilt, if you're suppressing it, it's too much for you to bear. It will sink you to hell if you do not come to Christ. And when you come to him, if you come to him, I can assure you that his burden is light. Yes, the Christian life is hard. Yes, there are challenges. Yes, there is sin that you will need to put to death by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. But overall, his burden is light compared to living a Christless life. This is our king, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God. And Matthew wants us to see that in the person of Jesus Christ, there is a breathtakingly beautiful, ravishingly radiant combination of diverse and paradoxical characteristics and attributes, all of which are meant to move us to praise him more passionately, to serve him more zealously, to love him more dearly, and to follow him more clearly, more nearly, sorry. This is who our Christ is. He is our advocate before the Father. He is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the, 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 the overseer of our souls. He is the Lord of lords. He is the rock from which we get our 
water. He is the man of sorrows who drinks our sorrow and gives us a cup of joy. He is the head of the church. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the door. He is the living water. He is the bread of life. He is the rose of Sharon. He is the Messiah. He is the Alpha and he is the Omega. He is the beginning and he is the end. He is the true vine. He is the great I am. He is the beloved. He is the good shepherd. He is the light of the world. He is the almighty. He is the carpenter. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. Let us come to him again and again. We as Christians came once. The rest of our lives are just to be spent continually coming to him. Father, we bow before the majestic glory of your Son. We thank you that he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Father, I long for these words of yours to find their resting place in every heart listening to these words, whether first-time visitors or seasoned believers that have been part of this fellowship for a long time. May your words of truth and grace be the source of hope and life in all who hear for the glory of the triune God for the good of the blood-bought church and for the gathering of the chosen race who have yet to receive your son's dear grace. We pray in his name. Amen.